Well, as I said, uh, this is our first foray into the Psalms for the summer. And so just before we dive into Psalm 1, I'd like to make just a couple of comments just to help ease us into the whole genre of Psalms. Uh, When we're reading a Psalm, there's a couple of things we should take note of. The first is that we are reading a worship song. That's what Psalms were and, and kind of still are. They were songs that were written to be sung as part of Israel's temple worship. So that means the words we're going to read are uh, words of prayer and words of praise uh, from ancient Israel. Uh, Specifically, they're very often from the heart of one man, that is David. So King David wrote the majority of the Psalms, and very often then the Psalms are in relation to a specific uh, situation in his life or in the life of Israel. But the amazing thing is that even though they're from a specific time and a specific place, they still seem to echo uh, the, the desires of our own hearts. That wherever we are, if we are people that worship God, we're going to find in the Psalms things that articulate how we're feeling and and how we should relate to God. There are truths that are universally true for all that worship God here in the Psalms. Uh, The other thing about them is that they are poems. So if you really loved uh, poetry in middle school, man, the Psalms are for you. Because they're filled with figurative language and word pictures and and all sorts of of ways that, um, that are great about poetry. Because poetry is always written to express truth in a compelling way. Poems are designed to connect with our head and with our, with our heart. Now, here's an example of the kind of emotion that we find in the Psalms. This is Psalm 42, verses 1 to 3. The psalmist writes, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? What a beautiful picture, a heartbreaking picture of someone who is in such sorrow that they feel as if they've just been eating their tears day and night. And no doubt we can remember a time in our life just like that. And that's the whole point of Psalms, that that there are truths that are being expressed in emotionally uh, active ways, in dynamic ways. Now, this can be a little bit overwhelming uh, for us as Canadians because we are not the most emotionally, you know, uh, evocative people, right? We we are British in our ancestry, so we tend to have a stiff upper lip. We don't get too excited about many things. Uh, Even as Christians, as evangelical MBs here, we tend not to get too worked up about anything, even the grandeur of God. So we have to be ready to be pushed a bit emotionally, As we enter the Psalms, we should expect a few things. We should recognize the fact that it's good for us to be stirred in our hearts. That we will never really come to the point of conviction unless we care about stuff. And so it's a good thing that these poems are are designed to have imagery that should make us feel some things. And as we enter into the Psalms, uh, we should expect to delve deeply into words of worship and prayer. We should expect to be confronted by compelling truths about God, from God, for the people of God. And we should expect to be pushed intellectually and emotionally. We should come ready for our hearts to be stirred and to embrace that. So with all that said, we're going to turn the page to our very first psalm, Psalm 1. This is uh, an introductory psalm. It's placed there at the beginning because it really introduces all the themes that we're going to find throughout the book of Psalms. And uh, if you remember, uh, again, from middle school, uh, you remember that your English teacher probably assigned you an essay where you had to compare and contrast uh, two characters, 
like from a book or from a play. And so they would say, compare and contrast Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. And in doing that, the reason they wanted you to do that is because you would understand the characters more. You would understand that, you know, Macbeth is kind of broken and corrupt morally, but Lady Macbeth, she's a piece of work. She's ruthless. And so you see the two of them together, you understand them more. That's what this psalm is like. Because in this psalm, there is a contrast between the ways of the wicked and the ways of the righteous. And as the two are contrasted, we understand each of them more, and it's designed to have us stirred up towards greater righteousness. So with all that in mind, I'm going to read a Psalm 1. I'm just going to read it aloud, and then after, we'll have the verses on the screen as we work our way through it. So here's God's word to us this morning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's God's word to us this morning. And then what we're going to do is work our way through this psalm by uh, asking and answering two questions. Uh, Two questions that come from the very first part of verse 1. The title of our sermon is is from there. It says simply, blessed is the man. And so we're going to ask two questions. Who is this man? And how exactly is he blessed? So number one, who is this blessed man? Now, um, blessed, to be blessed means to receive good things from God. Uh, It's often translated to be happy. And so you could say, who is this happy man? Why is he so happy? Uh, We should note right from the start that the blessed man is a reference to a specific person. But it's also, this blessed man is is a representative of all of mankind, all of humankind. So we could very well ask the question, who is the one who is blessed? Man, woman, child. And we see two uh, characteristics of this blessed man. Two things that have led to his blessing. So the first thing we see is that the blessed man is someone who turns away from sin. You see this in verse 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And so there you see a progression of someone who gives themselves over more and more to sin. First walking with those who are in sin, then standing, and then sitting with those who have a sinful lifestyle. It's a description of the way in which we can be influenced by those around us. As we give ourselves over, give more and more time to those who want nothing to do with God, we also tend to think that way and to feel that way. The idea of of a scoffer is one who ridicules those who would pursue godliness. And so here you have a person who began simply walking with sinners and then has sat down with a scoffer, has made himself at home with those who want nothing to do with God. And again, the idea is that as we we give that kind of influence, uh, give opportunity for that influence in our life, that we will begin to uh, echo that same ungodliness. Now, in some ways you could say that that this kind of instruction is one that we typically get to give to kids and youth. Right? To our kids, to our youth, we say, look, you've got to be careful who you're friends with. 
right? You want to be careful not to make friends with the wrong crowd because they're going to influence you. It's like those kids at the back of the school, the smoke pit. If that was you, I was not allowed to hang out with you. You were, you were bad news. And so sometimes we think, look, this is, just, this is just for kids, right? Kids have to be careful who they associate with, but as adults, it's not that big a deal. Except the idea here is not just the people that we might hang out with. We give, um, we open ourselves up to the influence from ungodly sources through a whole, whole host of ways. Uh, through the movies we watch, through the podcasts we listen to, through the journals we read, through, through all of those that rejoice in things that God says is, is not good for us, there's a time where we give opportunity where we might then begin to think and to act and to feel in that very same way. Now, there's a tension here though. There's a tension here because if you know the New Testament and you know the life of Jesus, man, he came and it seems like all he did was hang out with those who were in sin. In fact, he was criticized for it. And he did it because he was on a very specific mission to bring the hope of God to those who didn't know God. And so on the one hand, we see in the Bible that 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 should be our mission as well. We are called to know and love the people in our community regardless of what they believe. But there's a difference between hanging out and knowing the people that care nothing for God and making your home with sin. And that's the tension that is the Christian life, where we are to be in the world but not of the world. We are to to know and genuinely care for everyone around us and yet also have a heart for that which is righteous and godly. And so the litmus test for us in light of this this first verse may simply be a question which is, you know, how comfortable are you with sin? Like as as you go about your daily life and you hear views that are expressed that are totally against the word of God, like how does it sit with you? What's your reaction? I don't mean in the lunchroom at work that when someone expresses, you know, something that is totally against the word of God that you rebuke them. That would not be a very loving thing to do. It would be very, make for a very awkward lunch. <laughs> but the idea is, like in your own heart, are, does that weigh on your heart? Are, are you saddened for those around you that are pursuing what they think is a good life and yet there is no real hope in their life? Are, are you weighted down for all those that, that don't know Christ? And that are doing what they think is best and yet it's not going to lead to a life forever, but it's going to lead to destruction. How do you respond? Is there a sense of just comfort and ease with all the sin that is around us? See, the truly blessed man or woman avoids getting to that level of comfort with sin. There is a pattern in their life of repenting of their own sin and turning away from those influences which are going to lead them towards that that comfort level with sin. On the flip side, on the contrary, the blessed man is one who loves God's word. We see this in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now to delight in the law of God, I think carries with it a real sense of hunger for God's word. The idea of appetite here I think is helpful. Because from, in terms of physical health, like if you're at your family dinner table and um, there's a great meal in front of you, a meal that everyone likes, like chicken wings or something, and someone around that table is just like, oh, I, just don't, I don't feel like eating. Right away, it's a red flag. Oh, are you feeling okay? Because you love hamburgers. You love, this is not good for you. You should want to eat this. This is tasty food. But if they feel nauseous, it's a sign that there is, like there's no health physically. 
Doctor, doctors will ask patients, right, after surgery, after a sickness, are you eating? Like, can you, can you eat anything? Are, do you have any interest in food? Because food is the very thing that sustains us. But when we're sick, it makes us sick, right? It makes us feel nauseous. Like, we can't, that's a sign that there's something wrong in our body. There, we're not healthy physically. It's the same thing when it comes to God's word with our spiritual health. If you have no interest in the word of God, then that, there's something wrong because the word of God is that which nourishes us spiritually. And so if it's kind of like a chore, if it's something that in theory you know that you should do, but you just, man, I just can't really get into it, then, then there's something wrong there. It's a sign that there is a lack of health. And what we see in the man who is blessed is one that he delights in it. He has a, a hunger, a natural appetite for the word of God. And the other word that's used there is uh, meditate, which is kind of an unfamiliar word. But to meditate on God, God's word really means that we ponder it. That's why it's a great thing to read the Bible in the morning, a few verses in the morning. It, it puts it in your brain, and you have the opportunity to, to reflect on it all the day long. It basically means that you are letting the word of God kind of have influence on you the whole time. <clears throat> now, I was trying to think of a, a good analogy, and the thing that came to my mind... Um, was a hard candy. Like, I don't know, if, when I was young, we had things called gobstoppers. They have those still gobstoppers or jawbreakers. And gobstoppers are great because you only really got the value out of them if you, if you sucked them, if you savored them. They had layers of, I'm sure, artificial flavoring, but they sure tasted good. And so if you were to suck on them, you would get flavor after flavor, all the, however long it would last until it would crumble in your mouth and your blood sugar would spike. It was great. <clears throat> so that's, that's kind of the idea here behind someone who delights and, and wants to meditate on the word of God, that you are savoring the word. You, you understand the sweetness of God's word and you want to savor it and to have it uh, infiltrate your whole being. If I could push the analogy even farther, I would conceive of a, like a hard candy that you might buy at Whole Foods for like $12. That would be like a vegan organic hard candy that somehow would be so sweet but then packed with nutrients that's, that's what it's like, where you're, I love eating this, and yet it's also good for me. That's the mindset of the blessed man, the blessed woman, the, the person who experiences the blessing of God because we devote ourselves to the word of God. We allow it to have influence in our life rather than the ungodly view of the world. So right in the first two verses, we get the idea that this psalm is kind of an instruction. It's telling us, you know, who is the blessed man? It's the one who turns from sin, the one who loves the word of God, and we get the impression that, that the psalmist is saying, that God is saying, look, you need to do this then. It would be good for you. You would experience the blessings of God if you were to do these two things. And of course, that's true. I mean, we see these truths not just in the Psalms, but all through the Bible, that we should love the word of God, we should turn from sin. But there is a, another truth, a deeper truth, that is um, a little difficult for us to grasp, mostly because we don't read Hebrew. Uh, if we were Hebrew scholars, we would have read Psalm 1, these first two verses, and there would have been something that would jump out at us. Something about the verb tenses that would have made us think, hmm, this is interesting. Because the verb tense in these first two verses is in the perfect tense. Which means, it's not just that this blessed man generally or usually turns away from sin, it's that he always does it he perfectly turns away from sin. And it's not just that he tends to like God's word, it means that he absolutely, every moment of the day, delights in God's word perfectly. 
And so really, if we were to read this from the Hebrew, we would read that the blessed man is one who never walked in the counsel of the wicked, never stood in the way of sinners, never sat in the seat of scoffers, and always delights in the law of God. Which would make us think, man, how could I do that? I mean, who is this talking about? Because this isn't me. I can't, I can't say that I have, I have never walked in the counsel of the wicked. Like, what exactly is the point of this psalm if it's painting a picture for us of something that is totally unattainable? Well, theologian James Boyce tells the story of a man named Joseph Flack who was asking this very same question. Joseph Flack was a Christian who was visiting Palestine in the early 20th century. And he had the opportunity to speak to a group of Arabs and Jews, and he decided to speak to them on Psalm 1. And so what he did is he, he read the psalm in Hebrew, and then he kind of highlighted the verb tense here. And he asked the question, who is the blessed man of whom the psalmist speaks? This man never walked in the counsel of the wicked, or stood in the ways of sinners, or sat in the seat of scoffers. He was an absolutely sinless man. And nobody spoke. And so Flack said, well, was he our father Abraham? And an old man at the back said, no, it cannot be Abraham. He denied his wife and told a lie about her. Well, then how about the lawgiver Moses? No, someone said, it cannot be Moses. He killed a man and he lost his temper by the waters of Moriah. And so Flack suggested David, King David. But no, it was not David. For he committed adultery and murder. And there was a long silence And then an elderly Jewish man stood up at the back and he said, My brothers, I have a little book here. It is called the New Testament. I've been reading it and if I could believe this book, if I could be sure that it is true, I would say that the man of the first psalm was Jesus of Nazareth. And that's absolutely the truth. That's that's what is inherent This is what the psalmist wants us to understand. The way that it was written was designed to set a standard that was so high, but also to to have us anticipate the coming of a man who is blessed, who, who has done all of these things perfectly, and that's Jesus. This psalm points us unavoidably to the coming Messiah. Jesus, the blessed man, the man who would never sin, and the one who delighted fully in the laws of God. And so while the standards of of moral excellence seem insurmountable, they really are designed for us to need a savior, to highlight the fact that in of ourselves, we need someone who could keep the law perfectly for us. That's the good news. The good news is that, yes, Jesus is the blessed man, but also we can experience the blessing of God because of what he's done for us. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says of Jesus, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the way of the righteous, the way of the blessed is open to everyone. All of us who are, who are wicked, all of us who experience sin in our own life, it marks us that is no longer the case when we put our faith in Jesus because we receive his righteousness. And then we also can live a life of blessing just as this man does. So who is the blessed man? Well, ultimately, it's it's Jesus. But it's also all who trust in him. All who follow in his ways will experience the blessings of God that we find here in this psalm. So let's, let's turn our attention then to how exactly 
the blessed man is blessed. Or, or said another way, how exactly we can be blessed as we follow in the ways of Jesus, the blessed man. Now, here's where we really get the uh, compare and contrast part of the psalm. Because the psalmist is going to contrast the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. Uh, we begin with the way of the righteous in which we find really a life and purpose that come through the blessing of God. So look at verse 3. It says of the righteous man, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So there's a word picture that gives the very clear indication of uh, abundant life. A life that is rooted and secure as a tree is rooted in the ground. Uh, a life that is sustained by a constant source of nourishment as a tree is sustained by a stream. A life that does not wither or fade. Fade. Even in the sun. Even in the trials of life. And a life that is fruitful and prosperous. That word prosper, we, like oftentimes we think it's you know, to do with, with health and wealth and the things of this world. But really, biblically, it, it gives the idea of someone who is accomplishing what he has set out to do, of fulfilling the call of God on our life. And I don't know about you, but when I picture this tree, the trees that came to my mind are these, uh, these giant sequoias that are in Sierra Nevada. Have you seen these trees? Uh, I brought a picture in case you, you haven't seen one before. Uh, this tree here is called the President. They named him. Uh, he is the second largest tree in the world. He is 3,200 years old and measures 247 feet tall and is 27 feet in diameter. That's like the footprint of a, of a small bungalow. And the reason that he has lasted so long is because these giant sequoias, they are able to withstand the typical threats that would kill the rest of the trees. For example, of course, they're too strong to be blown over by the wind. They have uh, in their bark a tannic acid, apparently, that is resistant to fungal rot. Uh, they, the wood boring, like the insects and beetles that kill some trees, like in northern BC, the, the beetles that have you know, devastated the pine forest, those insects, they can't really get through the bark. They have no effect. In fact, their bark is so thick that it's flame resistant. Forest fires are good for these trees because they burn all the other smaller trees around them and they're gone and they don't have to compete for resources. Even lightning, lightning which strikes these trees can do damage, but it very rarely kills them. In fact, uh, the president has one spire that's been hit by lightning. It's dead, but the rest of the tree continues to grow and flourish. I mean, after 3,000 years, what scientists have recently discovered is that they are growing faster than the younger trees. They're putting on more wood each year, even after all those years of growth already. I mean, isn't this the kind of life that we would like? Isn't this the kind of abundant life that we hope for? That we would grow and thrive and, and be fruitful and productive in our life, even into our twilight years? Even when our body is breaking down, that we would have a life of fruitfulness because, and this is the key, because of the source of the tree's life. See, trees are dependent organisms. They need to have access to water. And that's, that's the key in our psalm, that that tree is planted next to a flowing stream of water. So no matter what happens, no matter what circumstances happen in that tree's life, it always has the source of, of sustenance that it needs. And the same is true for the one who walks in the way of the righteous, those who trust in God. 
we also are connected to a source of life that endures because of our faith, because of the Spirit of God that connects us to Jesus himself. And so in spite of whatever circumstances affect us, in spite of our own sin, our own failings, we are always connected to a true source of life. And so we can have abundant life, even though there's times of intense heat and trial and difficulty. It is, it is life and purpose that comes by the blessing of God through our faith. That's what marks the way of the righteous. And that's the exact opposite from the way of the wicked. In the way of the wicked, we see death and meaninglessness. Look at verses four and five. It says here, as a shift, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So here, the psalmist uses another uh, imagery of vegetation, a plant, in this case, wheat. So wheat grows and then it's harvested And then there's this uh, outer husk around the wheat kernel called chaff. And you have to crush it, and then the the chaff falls away. There it is. And what they would do uh, in the old days, they would throw it up into the air, and then the chaff would be blown away by the wind. And so the chaff is the stuff that was useless to anyone. They would gather it up, and they would burn it because it had no value. You wanted the wheat kernel. So the comparison here is between a mighty tree that is fruitful and growing and chaff. Chaff has no source of life. It has been cut off from its water source. It has no roots, and so it is blown to and fro. The picture is one of destruction, the one of pointlessness in life. And we're meant to connect that with someone who doesn't truly know Jesus, someone who doesn't know God. Now, we have to be careful here, I think. As a Christian community, sometimes we can be very, very critical of all those who don't believe the way that we do. And we might take this and say, look, anyone who doesn't know Jesus, they are living a life that is totally pointless. There's no good in it. But the truth of the matter is that there's a lot of good being done by a great many people who don't know Jesus. Our our nation is filled with those people who are contributing to our society in so many good ways. The majority of our population would not be in a Christian church on a Sunday morning. And yet, we have people who are pursuing creative pursuits. There's there's research being done. There's so many ways in which our our society is growing and and benefiting from all those who have a purpose. I think there'd be many here. Maybe you're here this morning and saying, I'm not really sure that I believe in God, but I, I don't know that I feel like chaff blowing in the wind. I kind of feel like I've got purpose in my life. And that's very, very true that you would feel like that there are certain purposes that drive your life and those are good things. But notice the key in this psalm is what happens in the end because the end is what defines us as human beings. And what we see in the end is that all those who are separated from the source of life, their end is destruction. Look at verses five and six again. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It really does come down to the source of your life. According to modern secular wisdom, we need not look any further than ourselves for a source of life, for a purpose for our life. We would do well to simply know our heart, know our mind, and to go wherever that carries us, The the, the modern view is that that will lead to your greatest happiness and joy. 
that you will find purpose. But what we see here in the Psalms is that there is a flaw to that wisdom. There's a flaw that ignores the final judgment of God on humanity. And there's a flaw that overestimates the moral integrity of each human being. See, the presence of sin in even the most upstanding member of society means that there is no hope or purpose beyond this life. It means that that each and every one of us that has unforgiven sin will be justly under the condemnation of God because because God is perfect and holy and because heaven is is a perfect place for perfect people. If it's to be a place of, of paradise and perfection, we cannot enter it when we have sin as a part of us. And so the hope that we have here, the, the really point of conviction is that we need to examine our own hearts. We need to recognize that there is weakness in a life without God. It's a weakness that will be revealed under the final weight of God's judgment. And it will be, it will be a sudden and total, total destruction for those who do not have a hope in Christ. And so this psalm ends with a with a somber note because it is designed to have us examine our own hearts. It's a picture of the majority of our population that would not call themselves wicked and yet share the same essential wicked element that we all do, which is sin. And the sad truth is that many are not prepared for that day of judgment. I came across um, what I think is a compelling picture of this this suddenness, this destruction that comes on the Day of Judgment. And I found it in uh, the events of August 1st, 2007. Uh, There is a bridge in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the I-35 West Bridge, a bridge that had been used for decades by the people of Minnesota to go to and from uh, Minneapolis over the Mississippi River. And yet on that day in August, at the height of evening rush hour, all of a sudden the bridge collapsed. Suddenly, unexpectedly. You'll see a picture of it there. The people that were using the bridge assumed its strength. They they had been using it for so long, for some of them all their lives, that they assumed that it could carry the load. And yet all of a sudden, it it just gave way. And it was a a sudden and unexpected, devastating turn of events. But what's interesting is that the the structural engineers said that, in fact, this was preventable. That that all of the deaths and all of the, the injuries were preventable because they had been examining that bridge uh, years earlier and they had noticed that there was uh, these things called gusset panels that, that helped to bind the bridge together. You'll see it there. And you'll see the buckling of that gusset panel. They said ultimately that was the weakness of the bridge, that those gusset panels were too thin to carry the load. And so over time, they, they finally buckled and gave way. The people using the bridge, though, they weren't aware of it. Right? They assumed that it was a strong bridge, that the, the integrity was there structurally, and so they were using it day after day, and then all of a sudden it was gone. They didn't realize that it was really a death trap because of this flaw that was in the structure of the bridge. And the truth of the matter is that all those who live a purposeful life without Jesus are just like this bridge. There is an essential and deadly flaw in the heart of every sinner, And in the day of judgment, that flaw will be revealed. Immediately after this tragedy, state officials sent uh, inspectors out to examine all the other bridges in Minnesota. 
and they found 172 other bridges that had some sort of structural deficiency. 35 needed a routine preventative maintenance. 120 were repaired or replaced, and 18 uh, were under major construction. And in fact, this bridge was reconstructed uh, within 18 months. You'll see a picture there. They put a new uh, reinforced concrete bridge in its place, and, and the structural integrity was perfect, is what they would say. It, it's, it's sound. It's going to last for, for decades. But also the engineers said, look, we, we have to continue to evaluate the structural integrity of every bridge because over time, things break down. Over time, a bridge that was once solid will develop a flaw and then it needs to be addressed. And that's because everything on this earth eventually will break down. Everything rooted in human wisdom, in earthly wisdom, will eventually have a flaw. It, it will wear down, it will be exposed. Nobody here on this earth is perfect. And even good things, the good things that we do, they break down. But see, the contrast in our psalm here is that it's different with God. It's different with Jesus. The way of the wicked is one which, which assumes a sense of strength but has a flaw within it. But the way of the righteous is one that acknowledges our flaw, realizes that on our own, we cannot possibly endure this life for the life to come. And so we trust in the strength of another. And that picture of those giant sequoias growing on for thousands of years is the exact picture that the psalmist wants for us to have. That because of the grace of God in our life, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, we have a life that can endure. Not because of our strength, but because of the strength of Jesus. Because of his sacrificial work for us. And so look, look with me as we, as we wrap things up at the parallel language here that we see in, in Psalms and in John 3.16. And in our psalm, the very last verse, it says that the way of the wicked will perish. But John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but would have eternal life. This is the, this is the essence of the blessing of God. Not that we would figure things out on our own, not that we would try really hard to do our very best to turn away from sin and to love God's word and just do what we need to do to get into heaven. No, the blessing is that it's all been done on our behalf and that the blessed man is the one who we have faith in. And so the blessed man or woman or child who believes in Jesus, we also can have that same blessing. We have the, an answer to the wickedness in our hearts and we have the source of life that will never end. And so, at the very beginning of the book of Psalms, a whole book whose intention it is to stir up our hearts, to help us grow closer to God, we have, we have the key to this. And the key is that we would come to know our need for a Savior. And that we would examine our hearts, honestly. We would think, are there areas of my life where I'm trusting in other things? If I say that I'm a believer, is that, is that being shown in my life? Am I constantly being connected to the source of my life? Am I praying? Am I in the word? Am I turning from sin? Or am I assuming a strength in my life when I'm really not pursuing God? And if, and if you don't yet have a faith, my question to you would be, what is the source of your strength in life? What is the source of your hope? 
Could it be that you are living a life that feels very, very strong and purposeful and fruitful, and yet in the end, there will be a tragic flaw that will be exposed? One that is everything to do with your own sin, the ways in which you go against what God says is best, the the things that you trust in apart from God. This psalmist really loved the people of God. And this psalm was written with with a heart that wanted everyone who hears it to be stirred towards a greater affection for Jesus and a greater faithfulness in life. And so my hope this morning is that that is what's been happening in our own hearts. That as we go from here, that we would have this on our mind and our heart, we would meditate on it, we would savor it all the week long. And that wherever we are tempted to despair, tempted to feel overwhelmed, we would remember that, that if we know Christ, we have the blessing of his spirit within us to constantly sustain us in those times of difficulty. So let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you, God, for the truth that on our own, Lord, we, we are flawed. On our own, we are walking in the ways of the wicked and yet... You have come to save us, Jesus. I pray, Jesus, that this would be something that each and every one of us recognize. Jesus, that we pursue you uh, in repentance, in faith. And Jesus, that you would shape us, that we would turn away from sin, that we would hunger for your word, and that we would be blessed, Jesus, in the way that you are blessed. And I pray also, Lord, for all those who are considering the claims of faith, your claims, Jesus, I pray that there would be a stirring in their hearts. And Lord, that there would be a greater love for you. Thank you, Jesus, for this time. I pray that you would uh, continue to bless us as we worship you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.